0: All right. Well, you know, I thought we ought to do a new song when I'm calling this the uh, the sermon today a new song. You know, so we ha- have to do it, you know. Um, I hope you like that. It's, uh, it kind of syncs up also with just the, the general tone of today's passage that we're going to be studying in Exodus chapter 15. And um, it made me think of this, uh, you know, that I like I like musicals. I like movie musicals. I like going to musical live. I I like musicals. I know a lot of, particularly men, don't like musicals. I've talked to many guys that like they're not interested. They don't want to come. Like, I've had friends' wives who tried to like get them to go to a, a show. Like my, my wife and and her friend want to go to the show. The husband doesn't want to go. That's kind of awkward. Um, I I I. <laughs> I regularly, I, I often go to musicals with my wife and, and her sister and uh, my mother-in-law, and, 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 the, and their husbands don't go, it's just me and then three of them, um, and I'm fine with it, I'm good with it, but it's kind of funny because a lot of guys don't like musicals, or there, there are men that don't like musicals, and they'll be like, well, it's just unrealistic, you know, you're just, in, you're just you know, talking about your day, and all of a sudden you break into song. That's not real. That's not how people are. And I go, yeah, you know, that there aren't, there aren't cars that transform into robots, right? <laughs> you know, that's also not real, okay? Um, but the funny thing is that, uh, that musicals are closer to reality than most, like, superhero movies and that kind of thing. And, and we see it today. Today, essentially, we're starting off with Moses breaking into song. He's going to start off, he's going to break into song. This is after the the Israelites have now crossed through the Red Sea. The the Egyptians were destroyed by the Red Sea, and now they're on the other side, and all of a sudden it's going to be song time. And so that's what we're doing right now, Exodus 15. uh, We'll start with verses 1 through 12. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war, Yahweh is his name. I'll, let me pause there, real quick, just so this might help in general in your reading of biblical poetry. So whether you're reading Psalms or Lamentations or anytime it's like a song is breaking in. <coughs> Hebrew poetry is typically paired in paired lines. So you'll notice there where they're kind of like they either the, the first line it says whatever, the second line either like restates it in some way, defines it in some way, expands on it, something like that. But you can kind of see the pairs of lines, and that might kind of help you appreciate it more because you're gonna think, why are they saying it this way? Otherwise it can sound kind of awkward. But that's what is, is happening here. So when he says, uh, this is my God, I will praise him. My father's God, I will exalt him. You see how that's like kind of paired together where he's like defining it even further. Not just my God, but my father's God. I will praise him. I will exalt him. He's gonna use a slightly different word that means essentially the same thing. All right, picking up in verse four. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide my, the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them, I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Okay. So why is, the first thing we can ask is, why is this the moment for a song? Why is this the moment that they're going to break out and saying Moses is going to compose this song, and all of Israel is going to sing it. Why is this the moment? Well, they are, for the first time, definitively, finally free. Right? They are free, 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 free. Like those commercials, right? They're just free, 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 free. Uh, they have nothing left to fear, right? For even when they were exiting, even when they were leaving, um, they couldn't really rest, right? And they were just leaving Egypt in this long caravan, miles long, to heading out. And they've got their women and their children. They've got their animals. They've got all their, their old people. They're sick. They've got everybody with them that's vulnerable. They can't move fast. They're not an army. They're, they're heading out. And the whole time, they've got to be thinking, like, this can't really be happening, right? They can't, they're not really going to let us go. They're kind of looking over their shoulder the whole time. And then sure enough, their worst fears are realized. They're Just when they're in the most vulnerable position, Pharaoh comes after them. They see the chariots coming down. And you can imagine them looking back and seeing just the cloud of dust coming toward them and knowing we're doomed, right? Knowing this is, this is what we had feared all along. But now their worst fears have been realized and God had rescued them and definitively shut the door on the, on, on what, it, what had the, th- the threat that had been there all along. So now it's like, yes, we're going to praise God. We're definitively free now. We're going to praise him for what he has done and who he is. So we see a couple things here. We see kind of two main things in this section. Worship for who God is is the first one. That we see different things where we worship God for who God is. They call him my strength, my song, my salvation, my God, my Father's God, a man of war, they defines Yahweh as his name, glorious in power, unique among the gods. That's kind of an interesting one, right? Why does he say unique among the gods? And that's kind of a funny thing in general. If we know that there is only one God. Why does the Bible all the time say, talk about other gods? Well, because... While they are not God, while they are not equal with God, while they are not gods in the sense that we talk about the one true God, there are spiritual powers. There are spiritual powers that are at work in the world. And, and anytime there are these things that people worship, that kind of, those kind of things that are alternatives to worshiping the one true God, Yahweh, there are demonic forces behind those, those uh, objects of worship. They're a real thing. There are real entities there. They are not Yahweh God. They're, they're demons, demonic forces at work in the world. <coughs> but they still exist. And furthermore, you can even say, in terms of how the world thinks about things, right? In human terms, there are gods that people worship. So even if, even if you want to deny that part, there are gods that people worship. So he's saying, even among all of these, these false gods, you are unique, You're unique among the gods, and I apologize that it's capitalized in on that slide. I did not intend for it to be Um, majestic in holiness. He says majestic in holiness that he is set apart. He is unique, majestically set apart. He is awesome in glorious deeds. The, the book of Exodus in general points to God's glory. The book of Exodus in general is very much pointing to who God is, pointing to his glory, that he is revealing himself to the Israelites in a new way. If you think about the extent to which God had revealed himself before the book of Exodus, the extent to which he reveals himself to the patriarchs, it's not that much. It's, and it's often one-on-one. Right? It's often like God revealing himself just to Abraham, just to Isaac, just to Jacob, uniquely in these, in these kind of intimate one-on-one interactions where he's revealing himself to a person. Here he's revealing himself to the Israelites at large and to the Egyptians at large. He's revealing himself in these big, powerful ways, showing that he alone is worthy of glory and honor and praise. He is the point. He is the center of the story, not the people of Israel, not Moses, not Aaron. No person is the center of the story Yahweh is the center of the story. God is the center of this story. He is the point. And that is still true today, and that's a big, a big problem in our modern American cultural Christianity is that we often make it about us, about our faith journey, how do I feel, and, and what does God have in store for me, and what's God's plan for me, and, and who am I, and how has God made me, and, and a lot of focus on defining ourselves when it's really meant to be on God. He's meant to be the focus. He's meant to be the center of this. I want to show you this passage. This There's just this one verse in First in Peter, or two verses in First in Peter chapter 1. And it's interesting, if you read this in general, but here in this, you can kind of go back and look at the whole section. But, but just to highlight these two verses, he's talking about trials and, and difficulties that, That believers are going to face right and he says in this you rejoice though now for a little while if necessary you have been grieved by various trials right that's that's a common experience we know we're we're grieved by various trials in our lives family family issues financial issues work issues right interpersonal issues we have all kinds of things where we have trials in our lives things that are difficult for us he's saying you rejoice in them, when, because they are sometimes necessary for you to go through these things. You rejoice in them. And then he says, so that, so why do they rejoice in them? Why are we going through these trials at all? So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, so set that, that little section aside. Right? He's, he's saying this is a precious thing. The tested genuineness of your faith. That as you grow in Christ, as you go through these trials, your faith is tested. It's proved to be genuine. You trust in God through all of these problems. And the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's saying that, that your faith, that as your faith grows, as you grow through these trials, the result is you worship God. Right? The result is that you're praising him, you're giving him glory, you're giving him honor. Right? Notice it's not self-fulfillment. Right? It's not saying, oh, then, and then you feel complete in, in your being. You, you feel like you have, you have found your purpose in life. It's not about us, it's about Him. The tricky thing is, the more you take the focus off of yourself and put it onto God where it belongs, you, the better you will feel. Right? That you will actually feel better about yourself and about your life and your purpose when you are not focused on you, you're instead focused on God, where it, where it belongs. You're focused on bringing him glory, not yourself. You're focused on bringing him praise, not yourself. You're focused on on, on lifting him up, not yourself. That will actually result in, in you feeling better about life. And so we see that worship for who God is, that knowing who God is and the glory that he deserves, the honor that he deserves, the praise that he deserves, is the point of all of this. So they worship God for who he is. They also worship God specifically here for what he has done, what he has done for them. They say he has triumphed gloriously. He has drowned the Egyptians and their horses. He defeated the greatest power of Egypt, pharaohs, chariots, and chosen officers. Right? He points out he, that they're chariots, they're, they're, you know, their chariots, that's their big weapon is their, this chariot force, and their chosen officers, the best of the best, he defeated them. Right? He altered the laws of nature by causing the sea to divide, and they, they kind of spell that out. We're talking about ha- having the, the, the water stand on, on edge and that kind of stuff. He, he really spell out exactly what he has done, that he has specifically done these things for them. And it's important for us also to specifically remember what God has done in our lives, Right. That's why it's important that we have, that we tell stories of what God has done for us, that we recite that to people, that we testify to what God is. We talk about testimony a lot, right? The idea of like, what's your testimony? And we typically isolate that to the moment that you got saved. But testimony can be anything where you're testifying to what has happened, right? That's, that's why that's a, a court term, right? Giving your testimony is court term of your, your account of events, your account of what you know to be true. Well, that can account, that can also be things that have happened in your life, things that God has brought you through, difficult times that he's brought you through, and then you get to testify, give your testimony of here's what God has done for me. Those stories are really important. It can also be important to, to have objects that remind us of what God has done, right? Objects it's important that we not make them sacred in the way of like a relic and, and seeing it as like, oh, that's, that's where God lives. That's not, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about having these sacred objects that we, that we hold in that way. But just having things that, we, that cause us to remember what God has done in our lives. When I was in, well, since, since I was in high school, um, I've, I've been going on Mexico mission trips. Right, We advertise, we're doing one coming up soon. And, when I, and that's really also, the, those Mexico mission trips, the very first one was what got me into leading worship. They asked, does anyone want to lead worship? But I raised my hand, um, and so I went and did that. And then I continued to do that. And, and we also introduced uh, a VBS program when we were down there. Um, and so I was in high school, and I was leading this VBS program, and I would play songs for the kids and that kind of thing. And at the time, um, I had uh, bleached my hair. I, used to, I did that a lot in high school, and I wish I, had, I dug up a picture for you, but I didn't. But you, you guys seen Jed last week, okay, his hair. It was like that, very much like that, um, back in style. Uh, I won't go back, okay, I promise. But, but I had that kind of hair, and I would wear like a headband, and my hair would kind of like stick up like that, and the kids in the community started calling me the crazy chicken. Okay, that's what they like referred to me in Spanish. El Pollo Loco. That's the fast food restaurant. That's what that means, the crazy chicken. They, they would call me that. And, and, but it was, you know, it was like a good thing. Like it was endearing. Like they, they loved it. They loved coming to VBS. They loved interacting with us. And then one of the kids near the end of the week gave me this rubber chicken, <laughs> okay? And I put it in my guitar case and I've never taken, I leave it in there. I took it out right now, but I leave it in there, and every time I open my guitar case, it reminds me of how God used me and how God brought me into that, into that community. It gives me that connection to that story and remembering how God has worked in my life. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about, okay? I encourage you to do that, to, to find things like that in your own life that can be remembrances, that can be markers, that can be things that remind you of who God is and what he has done. It's even commanded in Scripture. If you look at, at Deuteronomy chapter 6, when God talks about um, you know, talk, teaching, teaching these things. We read it last week. He talks about teaching things to your children. Um, and he talks about talking about it all the time and, and bringing it up all the time. But then he also talks about putting it on your doorposts and, and in, in places in, in your home where you remember who God is and what he has done. Those things are important because that's how we are as humans. We remember things Physical objects can be helpful in that way. It's important we not make them an idol, but it can, they can be helpful in that way. The other thing we see in this passage is the, the order of salvation is highlighted. The order of salvation. You really, um, for them, but also applicably for us. That this is how God saves. This is how God works in their lives. So we see the first thing is that the people... Uh, is that God saves. The first thing is that God saves. Aside from anything else, God saves. We see this verses 30 through 30, for 31, the first part of 31. <coughs> Thus Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that Yahweh used against the Egyptians. Right? They see God has saved them. Look, God saved them. Boom, it happened. Step number 2 is the people believe and trust. The people believe and trust after God saves. See this so the people feared Yahweh, they believed in Yahweh and in his servant Moses. Right? After he saved them, then they believed. And then third, the people worship. And we see this in the first the first verse of this chapter today. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to Yahweh, saying, right? So then they sang this song. So you have these steps that are typically, I think, often not the way we think about it, right? That God saves, I think we have, do we have it again? That God saves, and then we believe and trust, and then we worship. Or that God's salvation is, comes first. Jesus died on the cross for us when we were still sinners, when we were rebelling against him. Right, even his own, even his closest disciples didn't really get it. Right? Peter denied him three times while he was on the cross. They didn't get it. They weren't like, oh, good, he's saving us. No, they didn't get it. They didn't know what he was doing. He saves them. He saves you. He died on the cross for you before you ever cared about him, before you ever heard about it. He saved you. He he died on the cross for you and rose again because he loved you that much that while you were still enemies, while you were still rebellious against him, but while you still denied his existence, he died for you. He saved you from your sins. So that then you can take that step of believing in him, trusting him, turning your life over to him, and then that will result in worship. But that's the order of salvation is God comes first. God does the saving. It's not about what we've done. It's not about anything that we can get credit for. <coughs> All right, next section, tambourine dance. Quinn, you said you were gonna, you, okay, just, just All right, starting in verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now the chiefs of Edom are dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Yahweh, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Yahweh, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, Yahweh brought back the waters of the sea upon them, and the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her, with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Okay, so first in this section we finish the song, right? We, we had cut off kind of halfway through the song. This is the second half of the song, and it really focuses on what God will do. right? So we had who God is, and we had what God did, has done. Now we have what God will do right the second half focuses on this the news of the events that seems to have reached the other nations right maybe people came to to see what had happened came to see the dead egyptians see their chariots floating in the uh, on the shore washing up on the shore they've seen this they and it really is the saying is they'll have a reputation as they enter the promised land their god will have a reputation as they enter the promised land that yahweh fights for them That he will bring his people into the promised land, that he'll reign forever and ever. We think about the confidence at this moment of the Israelites, it really makes their future unwillingness to enter the promised land all the more tragic. Right, that at this moment they're saying, Oh boy, like that all the people are afraid now because they saw what our God did. Look at how powerful our God is. All the power of Egypt was destroyed because of his strength. Like, look how great God is. He's He's fought for us. He won. He rescued us. The people in the Promised Land right now, the Canaanites, the Edomites, all these people that we're gonna encounter and their armies, they've got to be shaken in their boots because of what our God can do. And yet when the moment comes, they're too afraid. When the moment comes, they're too afraid. They've lost the confidence of this moment. And I think that can happen to us sometimes, too, where we, we can be confident. When, when God has done something for us, when we've had an encounter with him, when we feel like he's brought us out of something, we can have all this great confidence of, look at what God has done and how he has fought for me and, and, and he's there for me, he loves me. We can have that assurance. But then when it comes just a little while later, time to implement that and to trust him again, we can lose that faith, we can lose that hope. It's important that we hang on to that. So the song ends, and then now it talks about the fact that, that the women of Israel come out and they, and they're highlighted here, that they worship God for what He has done um, with this dance, right that they include a dance. Um, and, and really the way that it's written, um, most biblical scholars think, it's really describing a call and response kind of song. It's saying that, they, that it was probably done in a call and response kind of way, that the, the men would sing the first part and then the women would, would sing it back to them. Now that's kind of what it's, but it only, talks, it only really recites that first line for Miriam, but that it's probably saying essentially like et cetera is essentially how it's, it's describing it. Um, and it paints this beautiful picture. We you just think of this picture of God's people just rejoicing because God rescued them, because of what God, how God had rescued them. The men are singing, the women are, are responding in song and dance, right? That they're dancing, uh, just being so thrilled. And it's, of course, led by Miriam. And if you think about Miriam's story, it's so incredible, right? Miriam is um, very likely, like almost certainly, although she's not named, in Exodus chapter 2, when, when Moses' mother decides she can't hide him any longer, she puts him in this basket, or she makes this basket, puts him in the reeds, and it says his sister stood by to watch and see what Yahweh would do. She stood by to, to watch and see what's going to happen to this child. And very likely she was standing there thinking, I'm about to watch my baby brother die, be killed by an Egyptian guard. But she wants to be able to tell her mother what happened. And so then, you know, of course, the, da- the daughter of Pharaoh finds Moses, and she goes over and tells, uh, has the bravery to go over to royalty and tell her, I-, "I have a wet nurse that I can get for you," right? Facilitates that that um, that situation. So she she had that moment, and then of course she watched, and she lived as a slave for all of Moses' life, right? She watched him be raised in the palace. She watched his education she, from afar, right, but she watched this all happen. She watched him murder that Egyptian and then have to flee to Midian and then be gone for 40, right? She got to think he's dead for a long, a long time of that. Had, for a lot of her life, she had to think, what was the point of, of, of this whole thing with, with Moses and me watching him in the river? because now he's gone he's been gone for decades he's not gonna, and then all of a sudden to see him come back she watches him return perform miracles in the name of their god right she watches her baby brother perform these miracles she watched him lead her people out of Egypt and through the red sea right through the red sea she watches this happen and she can just look at all that God had done because she was brave enough to approach Pharaoh's daughter when she found her brother floating in that basket, right all started with her really started with her in this moment of bravery that she had. It's amazing and you can see why then that would result in her just like dancing like it's unbelievable that her life has resulted in this and Moses' life has resulted in this. So they have this beautiful moment of worship but but they're not out of the woods yet, right they or they're not out of the desert yet, um, right? They're still, they're still in this situation. They're still, they, they've come through the Red Sea, but now, now they've got to figure out how to live as free people, right? They have to learn to trust that Yahweh will provide and protect them. And the same thing is, it, it's true for us too, right? That they have this moment this amazing moment, of, and, and salvation is an amazing moment for us, right? The moment that we we learn about the love of Jesus, we put our faith in Him, we, we trust His saving grace, we unconditionally surrender to Him. It's this joyous moment, right? It can be this joyous moment of feeling freedom for the first time, not feeling that weight on our shoulders of guilt and shame that we sometimes carry around, that, 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 that comes off of us, and we just feel free, we can trust Him. But then, just like these just like these Israelites, we have to learn to take our first steps in freedom, right? We have to learn to trust God day by day, moment by moment. We have to learn to do that, and, and it's different. It's an, again, it's an exchange of what we used to do, right? We used to try to find our own happiness in our own way, but we had those systems in place. We got kind of used to it, even if it was sin. We got used to it. We got used to those patterns. Now we have to break out of that and learn to not rely on ourselves, but to rely on God. Right? To trust that Jesus loves us enough to, to look out for us after he saved us. And that's what the that's position they're in here. Right? They're, they're in that same position. So we'll look at that, the first step of that here in verses 22 through 27 of this chapter. Bitter. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water, the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Mara. It means bitter. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to Yahweh and Yahweh showed him a log and he threw it into the water and the water became sweet. There, Yahweh made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of Yahweh your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am Yahweh your healer. Then they came to Elim, where where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So it's interesting, right, that it says they traveled three days into the wilderness. Three days into the wilderness. Does that ring any bells? That's the amount of time that Moses originally asked for. This Is the amount of time that he originally asked for to be allowed to travel. You see it in Exodus chapter 5, 3. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. That was the original, that was the opening offer. Now they're three days in and they're mad, right? It's the exact same thing, exact thing that God that they started with, and, and they're they're already having problems. <coughs> and the Israelites might understandably have expected to find something special there, right? If it's this whole thing of like, God said go three days into the wilderness, and they go three days into the wilderness and they're like, well, this is not great. This is not, like what they thought there would be something cool here. If God told us to go this far, like, why did he want us to make this journey? Instead of something cool, they found dehydration and water that they couldn't drink. Not great. And so then they're, they're grumbling against Moses, right? They're mad at Moses um, for this. And this is the third time that they've come to Moses with their complaints, right? The first time they're mad when, when they're, Moses initially goes to Pharaoh and ask them to set them free, and then remember, Pharaoh makes their work harder, and they're mad at Moses that time. That's Exodus chapter 5. Um, then when they're trapped between Pharaoh's army and the Red Sea, the people are mad at them again, like what, what, there are not enough graves in Egypt, that we had to die here instead. And now, three days into freedom, they don't have any drinkable water, and they're mad again. And this ought to be comforting to anyone who's ever tried to lead a group of people. Right, especially in the name of God. Right. But anytime we lead a group of people, it can be difficult. And we look at Moses' response to this. Moses' response is that he turns to God immediately, and God responds with a solution. Right? That's that's his initial reaction is perfect in this situation. The people complain, he turns to God immediately, and God provides a solution for him. He's learning how to live with God and how to lead these people. Right, we think of this as, and, and you think of maybe, you know, maybe you're not a Moses, you're not like leading you know, big groups of people, right, but, but you're leading somebody, right, you, you have some people to lead, you have people that, that are looking to you, you have people that, that will look to you for an example and for leadership, and that's what Moses here has this perfect response of, these people are mad at me, let me turn to God and see what he has to say. And he provides the help that he needs. He provides this miraculous log. There are a lot of people, um, a, as, I've, as I've studied Genesis and Exodus, there's like a lot of people who are very interested in providing scientific explanations for everything that happens in all these books. Um, and I don't care at all. So I don't look into it that much. If you like it, that's fine. But they try to find this, and, and so there have been, there have been people that have gone out into this area, into the, the, the desert in, in Saudi Arabia, and tried to find, like, well, what, what, it, what properties does this tree have? Could it fix water? It's a miracle. It's meant to be a miracle. It's not like, it's not some special log that, that makes water fresh. But they tried. They tried. They're like, well, try to throw this one in. Nope, doesn't work. Okay. They, they tried it to figure it out. Um, it's a miracle, right? It's a miracle. God's do, doing a miracle here. He's proving that he can not only rescue, but sustain his people. And you like to think, like, what if they had asked him earlier? What if they had asked him earlier for water? Like, he's, you gotta think that he was waiting for them to ask, right? Oftentimes, he's just waiting for them to ask. <coughs> and I think that's often true for us, too, that, God often waits for us to turn to Him. That if we're going to just flail out there and and, and worry and, and struggle and try to figure it out on our own, He'll let us do that oftentimes. I, I know that He'll let us do that because I let my kids do that. I mean, lots of times, they're struggling with something, or they, you know, they, they're they like trying to, trying to get my attention in some way other than uh, just asking. Right? My daughter, if she's like trying to get something open, trying to get something fixed, she'll just... Wander around the house just like, uh, 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 you know, and like, I can tell she's trying to get my attention, but I'm like, I'm, I'm not doing anything until she asks me, right? Until she asks for help. She's like, just throwing this fit. I think that that's how God sees his people, right? He sees these people just wandering around the desert, just grumbling about water, and he's like, I wonder who you could ask for that. I wonder who you could turn to in this moment. God wants us to learn to need Him. Right? He wants us to, tur- to get in the practice of turning to Him in these moments. He offers them this statute, this, uh, this rule, essentially, that if you will listen to and obey Yahweh, then Yahweh will not plague them with the diseases He put on the Egyptians. Now, this is the first step in their sanctification. Right? He's starting to move them just a little bit toward following Him, obeying Him, listening to Him. Now that they're walking in freedom, they have to learn to become more like him, learn to be his people, learn to turn to him in these moments, learn to listen to and obey him. Right? They've been saved, they've been set free, they're his people. They've been bought with a price. Now they must learn what it means to live as his people. <coughs> and I'm hoping you're starting to see that this whole Exodus saga is really a, a foreshadowing, a, a metaphor for God's ultimate salvation of the world, his people, through Jesus. You can see I, I provide a chart in your study guide that's here as well. We've started to talk about some of this stuff, but I want you to see it more and more because it's it helps you get more out of it if you can see this. That salvation in Egypt is our salvation in sin, right? Slavery in Egypt is is slavery and sin. That they were saved by the blood of the Passover lamb, right? That they kill these Passover lambs, put the blood on the door to, so that judgment will pass over them. We're saved by the blood of Jesus, the lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Right, His blood saves us. That when God sees his blood, he passes over, it ju- does not judge us. That they pass through the Red Sea it's kind of a final declaration of what God has done, that God has rescued them, they pass through the water, baptism. Right, baptism is is already like declared when, when we look at Noah, right? They've they, they Peter draws that out in his letter, but even here again, that as they pass through the water, that they, they've been saved. Now they pass through the water, we get saved. We get baptized as a symbol of of that. See that. They wander in the wilderness learning to trust and obey God, learning to follow him. We go through discipleship, sanctification process. We we learn to follow him after we come to know him. And they're heading toward, right, they're in this wilderness wandering, learning to follow God, learning to trust him. They're heading toward the ultimate destination, the promised land. God has promised for them that there will be peace and prosperity when they get to the promised land. We are headed for the new heavens and the new earth when Jesus returns. And he makes all things good again. He makes all things new. And we go to be with him forever. All right, we'll wrap up with this. How should we then live? Number one, worship God for who he is and what he has done, right? That's, that's ultimately what God wants. He wants us just to acknowledge who he is and what he has done. Number two, Trust that God will work in your, in your life as he has worked in your life. Right? That, that what God has done in the past, he will do in the future. That he will be there for you continually. That you can trust him from what he has done for you that he will do, continue to, to be there for you. And then lastly, turn to God in times of trouble rather than grumbling. Right? Learn to default to him. He's not a last resort. He's not a last resort. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this song that we see from Moses and the way that he worships you, for who you are, for what you have done, for what you will do. Um, we pray that we could follow that example, God, that as, as you have saved us, as we have turned to trust in you, to put our faith in you, that we can worship you, not in order to gain your favor, not in order to gain salvation. We don't work for those things. We work in response to what you have already done for us. We pray that you would be glorified through our lives. In your name we pray, amen.